Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Adam Klickfeld. I have different methodologies for how I come to a Shabbat morning sermon. Sometimes I, there's something I want to say and I find a way to connect it to the Parsha. Sometimes I want to say something sweeping about the Parsha. I try to like really get to what this Parsha is all about. And then sometimes I go touring um, and I start looking at the Parsha until a word or a phrase or idea catches my mind and I go down a rabbit hole and I see if there's something there and if there's something isn't there, I go back up and I go to the next one. Uh, and then there will be a teaching that will organically emerge from a particular curiosity I find in the verse. And I don't even have a methodology for which of those methodologies I use any particular Shabbat. Sometimes it's just based on what's going on. My methodology for teaching on Shabbat afternoon, for a reason that I can't explain to you, is always the same. It's always in that last category. I, I've, I never on a Shabbat afternoon have interest in like a encapsulating a Parsha. I want to do Torah study. And what's Torah study? It's looking at the verses until something catches your eye and explore it uh, with depth. When you go that route in the Torah study, sometimes it is easy to forget to pull out and actually ask the larger question as to what's actually going on in the larger sweep of the story. In this situation, by using the methodology that I normally do, which is to pinpoint one small thing and go exploring, it actually brought me unexpectedly back to larger issues in the Parsha, which is a way of introducing this and saying that where I ended up when I was preparing for this is not at all where I thought I was going to end up. Um, if you think about what Parshat Shlach Lecha is all about, it's really the Jewish people's post-Exodus first encounter with the notion of the land of Israel as a destination worth going to. Right? So we know, we know Eretz Kanaan from Breshit, but we're not a people yet. We're a family. Right? There's no, there's no pre-Zionism, I don't think, really, in Sefer Breshit. I mean, you can... You can pull it out of the argument given to Abraham, but it's given to a, a man and a family. By the time we're in Parshat Sefer Bemidbar, and you have a nation uh, in the, in the um, description of the Torah headed towards a land that is promised to them, you begin to see the biblical seeds of the idea that we're supposed to develop a civilization there. Um, and by looking closely at one word, we're going to hopefully get to some of the most important and the thorniest and the most uncomfortable aspects of what it means to bring Jewish sovereignty to the land of Israel then and now. Okay, so that's my intro. So we start with the, um, the second verse of the Parsha, the first verse of any significance. Um, uh, and it's, on, it's the first uh, source on the sheet. Uh, Natan, do you want to read Shlach Lachan Hashim? Okay, so the command given to Moshe, shlach is a root that's pretty simple, to send the lacha. There are many, many commentaries on what the lacha is doing there. Send for yourself, send only when it's good for you. Maybe it's just a grammatical, um, uh, a grammatical oddity. Anashim is supposed to send men. Viyaturu, they shall tour. I think it is just etymological coincidence, not etymological connection, that the Hebrew word latur is, the, is a homogram, homophone, to the English word tour. I don't think English tourism is connected to la tour, but they actually mean the same thing, or, they, or they're close to it. A tayar in Hebrew is a tourist, someone who does touring, la tour, but it's just a, um, a coincidence. And we wanna 
um, we're going to drill down what that root might mean. Whatever these Anashim are supposed to be doing, they're supposed to be taring or touring from the root taf vav resh, the land of Canaan. Which land of Canaan? Asher anino Israel, that I am giving to the land to the children of Israel. Interesting, it's a present tense verb. Uh, and then some other descriptions, ishachad, ishachad, one, uh, one person, lematevatav, uh, from the uh, family, the tribe of his father, tishlachi, you should send one per person, kol nasibahem, each one should be a prince. Okay. If we didn't know that vayaturu looked like and sounded like the English word tour, and you were just, you knew every other word in the sentence, we didn't know that one, what would you guess the force of the verb vayaturu is? Send the men to do what to the land of Israel? Spy, okay, so now go deeper and spy. What does spy mean in that English sentence, Joel? To see what it's like so that we can come in and know what we're up against and what not. Okay, so cl classic spying, right? Going to see how challenging it might be for us to go there and make it our home, right? Which is actually very different than the modern Hebrew tayar, because the modern Hebrew tayar, tourist, that, that does come from this verb, is not going somewhere to see if they can make it their home, it's the opposite, right? It's going to a place that's not their home, so they just can ex visiting. just visiting, right? But this vayaturu, perhaps, according to Joel, is implying a going there so that eventually you will not be just visiting, you will be inhabiting. Uh, again, forget everything else you know about the story and just the verse. What else could vayaturu mean if you didn't know what it meant? Divide. Divide. Say more about that. Yeah? All right, so if we literally didn't know what the root meant, maybe they're, they're being sent to pre-divide because we know that there are tribes that are going to be sent there and they're going to each have specific sections. Good, what else? Any other possibilities? Scott? Right, if we really didn't know what Vayaturu meant, then perhaps they're on a mission not only to check it out, but to do a pre-conquering. If we knew the Vayaturu was something about looking or espying or investigating, are there any other um, shades of that meaning that could be implied here? Reconnaissance, surveillance, surveillance the topography, right? And we're going to get those details later, the, the laning that uh, Scott did. It tells us, right? So th this word actually is, there's a perush on this word in the verses that follow in the Parsha. But from just the word, it could mean to check out what enemies might be there, to check out the terrain so that we can plan our attack properly, uh, and it could be just to see what it looks like. Okay. Ibn Ezra, who is a, a grammarian in addition to a commentator, this is what he says. This is the second source. Vayaturu, vayichapsu. So he says, he turns vayaturu, he says, reader, if you don't know that root vayaturu, if you haven't seen the tour buses in Israel with that root all over it, it means vayichapsu. Lechapes means to search. He softens a little bit. Right? He says, the only thing Vayatur means is just to, to seek out, right? It doesn't necessarily mean to seek out in order to conquer. It just means to look closely. But then he gives an interesting proof text or a similarity text. V'chein, this is the same as V'lotaturu. When I sing it like that, you know where that comes from, from the third paragraph of the Shema. He says that verb, V'lotaturu, which we'll look at in a second, is the same as Vayaturu. And Ibn Ezra says the, the Taturu there in that section also means to seek out, to look for something which might not be obvious. Let's look at that verse. That is a few chapters later um, in the Parsha. So it's the same Parsha 
but a different section altogether. This is Tzitzit, chapter 15 of Bamidbar, verse 39. These fringes, these should be to you as a fringe. You shall look at them. Some people, when they're davening, they take their tzitzit and they put it in front of their eyes in that moment. You're supposed to actually see them. Why are you supposed to look at them? As a reminder. So you should remember all the mitzvot of God. And you shall do them. You shall not what? You shall not what after your heart and your eyes? follow but we always we, how can we not follow our eyes what is what are we not supposed to be doing after our hearts and our eyes in this section what does the verb mean desire. right we 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 think that the notion is not the desire right be, like and after your hearts and your eyes which you would be inclined to zonim means to do something licentious something that is um, yeah. not permitted in the interpersonal realm. But the verb literally means don't go seeking for it, right? Or at least as Ibn Ezra is using it. If you stay, I mean, we, we sometimes laugh at or, or scorn uh, members of the ultra-Orthodox community who will avert their eyes when they're walking down the street and they're seeing some of the opposite gender, right? Um, because we live in a society where that's not considered, um, that's not considered, pornographic, that's not considered licentious, that's considered living. But they might be doing exactly what Ibn Ezra says to them doing, is don't go searching after the things, because if you search after them, you might see them, and once you see them, you're going to be inclined to follow them, right? So, lechapes, as he says it means in the verse in, in Shlachacha, is to go searching for something that if you didn't go searching for it, you wouldn't happen on it by itself. You put that back into the original verse, then Ibn Ezra saying, they should do that. They should look for the places in the land of Canaan that they're not going to see if, haha, they were just tourists, right? It's interesting. Tourists generally only see the things that are made available to them, right? You ever have an experience with a really good tour guide and then they, you transcend touring, right? Because you, you see things that are not uh, um, visible to the naked eye if you were just doing it on your own. This is one of the possibilities for what Vayaturu might mean. Let me pause here. Questions or comments on what we've done so far? Because it's going to take some turns. Yes, Warren. And I'll, for Zoomers, I'll repeat the question. Do you mean in the first verse? Yeah, as opposed to a command. Yeah, the form that it is in Hebrew, it's it's just a, it's called a, it's a, it's a vav ha'ipuch verb, which means the verb looks like it's, um, it's future, but it's sort of understood as, as a command, but it could be understood as a prophecy. Yeah, good. Anything else so far? Okay, go to the next source. We go from Middle Ages to late 19th, early 20th century, Hamektavar. Hamektavar was written by Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, known as the Natsiv. He was the Rosh Hashiva in Volozhin in Lithuania, late 19th century. Uh, one of the great um, commentaries, one of the great and really digestible commentaries from that generation on Torah. And he also says something on Vayatu Eretz Kanan. Uh, I'll read just so that we don't have to repeat again to the people who are on Zoom. Uva Sefer Dvarim, and in the book of Dvarim, where, chapter 1, verse 24, Ktiv is written, Vayavo ad Nachal Eshkol, they should go all the way to the Wadi of Eshkol, Vayiraglu at Ota. 
he's going to be comparing the root latur, from which we get the verb vayaturu, to liragel, which is used in that verse. Liragel is related, of course, to the word regel, which means foot, right? Like a aliyat regel is a pilgrimage. But what does it mean to feet a place, to foot a place? We could play around with it. It means to to, to go there by foot, so you're seeing every nook and cranny. But what does the Torah mean when it says that they were supposed to ota, particularly since the, spa, the spies, scouts in our parsha Shlachlacha, are sometimes referred to in Hebrew as the Miraglim, right? The ones who got there by foot. And in modern Hebrew, that is actually a proper word for a, a spy. So what's the difference? Bechen kativ lahalan, and also, it says later on in that same chapter, um, sorry, in the same book, chapter 21, verse 32 of um, uh, Devarim, liragel et ya'azer. They were supposed to go scout out, I translated it here as espy, a place called ya'azer. Ve'ha'hevdel ben latur, o liragelhu. There is a distinction between the verb latur, which we were playing with in our parsha, and liragel both having to do with going to a place and checking it out. If you're going to see which is the place itself amongst, within the whole area they're going to, that might be the proper one to try to conquer, that's Vayaturu. Vayaturu is I haven't decided even where I'm going to conquer. I, I know that this whole area is possible, but I'm going to figure out from, from my vayaturing what's the vulnerable spot, what's the, what's the weak spot, how can I get in there? Demashma'o, for its meaning is, like Ibn Ezra, mechapes, seek out, meaning you don't know yet. Mechapes eizemakom huatov yoter le'inyano. Which of these potential places to conquer is the best place uh, to do, uh, to, to achieve that successfully. The Ayain, look, he says, he says, I already wrote something similar about this on the same section we looked at before, on the verse, I didn't bring you what he said there. That's not the case. When you go to a place that you already know, You've already determined that this is the place you can go to. You're not making any decisions about whether or not to conquer this place. But you're just trying to figure out how to conquer it. What's the best strategy for taking this place that you've already decided is worth taking? That does not connect to the language of tour. This verb built from the word foot. That you go with your feet to figure out the exact nature of the place. You can actually read this commentary in two different ways. In one way of reading it, Liragel is a closer look. You've decided you're going to conquer this place. Now you need to know what's the angle of this mountain over there and how many, how many days is it going to take to, and how many soldiers is it going to take. And, and you can only do that by a close look by foot. Whereas by a tour is a, hmm, I could conquer that area, that area, that area. That one looks better to me from a distance. You could also flip it, right? You could say that in order to know where you're going to make um, yourself and your armies vulnerable, you need to look at something very, very close up. But once you decided that that is what you're going to conquer, you might be able to figure out how to, how to do it slightly more from a distance. 
if you pull that, uh, that, that reading back into our verse, then what it means is, send the men, because they need to figure out on this trip where we're going to enter and which parts the land of Canaan, right? Think, we, we think of the land of Canaan as having a map with particular borders. And those, we get those borders later on in Parshat Varim. But now think of the land of Canaan as a borderless region. It's an area. And there's going to be an area within the area that you're going to conquer or try to conquer, call your own. You've got to figure out what that is on this trip, right? It's a very different understanding of, of, of Vayaturu. You're not necessarily figuring out, you know, um, uh, which enemies you're going to meet, but what part of this whole land is worthy of your attention and worthy of your army's attention? Comments or questions on that? Hamek Davar. Okay, so we've got two readings of Bayaturu that are similar to one another with some subtle differences. And now for something completely different. And this is where my own inquiry this week um, went uh, went, went not off the rails, but took me places I wasn't expecting to go. The Chose of Lublin, the seer of Lublin, he was the, the great sage of Lublin and the yeshiva that was there, 18th, 19th century. This is what the Chose of Lublin says on Vayaturu. And he's doing something here, which is radical grammatically and radical conceptually. It's so radical grammatically that if I try to do it, people say, that's not what the word means. That if I try to do it, they say, oh, Rabbi Klikvah doesn't know Hebrew so well. But when you're the Chose of Lublin, and, no, and everyone knows that you do know Hebrew so well, you can say, like the date in the Talmud, I know it looks like it says that. It really means this, okay? He says, Vayaturu. Yes, reader, I know what Vayaturu means, but I'm going to read it as Vayatiru, Lehatir. What does Lehatir mean? Right, so in, in, in Halakha, Lehatir means to permit. It's the opposite of Le'asur. Something is Asur prohibited, Something was mutar permitted, so to le'esor something is to make something uh, prohibited, and lahatir is to permit it. But at the core, why does the verb lahatir mean to permit something in halakha? Because it really means to untie something, to take something that was all knotted up, it was a no, and you opened it up into a yes. Lashon hatarat hakesher. Read this verse, he says, the way you would read it, the, the notion of untying a knot. Ki Eretz Yisrael haitak shura. The land of Israel at that time, it was all tied up. It was claimed. Kfuta unetuna bidei shiva amamim. It was bound and claimed. How did I write it here? Compelled by the fact that it was given over to the hands of seven nations. Bahamaraglim. And interesting, he uses the word that, um, uh, that the... Um, that Hamek Davar says is different than Latur. The spies, the Meraglim, by going into that place, they had one primary obligation. To untie the knottedness of the land or to untie the connection that the people already there had to their land. In a yeshiva in 19th century Lublin, when um, um, many, many decades before Zionism was really becoming a thing in the German Jewish mind, you had a Rebbe who, because he was a religious Jew, had never disconnected his hope and prayer 
from the notion of returning to the land of Israel, saying something about the original touring of the land of Israel, which is the very thing that weighs so heavily on the notion of modern Zionism, a Zionism which you know I am extremely committed to. I'm extremely committed to the process that began in Parshat Shlach and the process that um, miraculously resulted in the land of Israel in the 20th century. But one of the things that um, was uh, a knot that needed to be untied as Zionism was becoming a, um, a reality in the 19th century and is still being discussed every single day today is what do we do about the, the notion that we can't will away that there were people on the land when we got there in the 19th century. There were people on the land when the scouts got there in Parshat Shlach Lecha, and they were sent by their commander. The commander then was Moshe and God, and our, the commander in the 20th century were the commanders of the Haganah to try to loosen the tie that connected the contemporaneous people of that land to the land itself. Many of you have heard possibly versions of an aphorism, something like Palestine is a, right, a people without a land uh, for a land without a people. It was a romantic notion of the Jews in exile who had been disconnected, untied from their land for two millennia, and perfect, they found a land empty of people. It was a people without a land, right? Um, the, apparently, the first version of that phrase uh, before it became an aphorism was uh, coined by a non-Jew. Uh, I remember 19th century, there were, um, there were many Christian pastors who were also writing and speaking rather floridly about uh, a return to Zion by the Jewish people. And this, re this Reverend Alexander Keith said it like this, the Jews are a people without a country, even as their own land, as subsequently to be shown, is in a great measure a country without a people. And that was recast six decades later by Israel Zangwill, who originally was a strident Zionist and over the course of his, of his time leadership became almost an anti-Zionist. But in his Zionist um, uh, years, he wrote Palestine is a country without a people, the Jews are a people without a country. And then like many famous statements, it gets ascribed to many people over time. I find it fascinating that in the first verse that sends the first group of freed slaves looking for a land um, in the land of Israel, there's a hint at, even if it's a etymological jump from Vayaturu Vayatiru, there's a hint at the, um, the unavoidable catastrophe of what's going to happen when a people who want that land are going to get there and they're people who are already bound to that land. And I'm not sure we have moved that far from that notion. I remember when I was in, um, in Israel and spending time in the Palestinian uh, territories um, on the encounter trip, there were lots of, um, lots of claims thrown out by the people we met that really since 1948 and before Israel has engaged in strategic and demonic uh, and terrible genocide. And when we had an opportunity for us to discuss our experiences on our own, you know, sometimes when you're having an intense experience, your humor gets, gets, you know, wry and biting. And I remember some, some of the people would say to each other, if Israel is 
been committing ge genocide, then the, we're the worst committers of genocide in history, right? Because since 1948, and this is actually good news, the Arab and Palestinian uh, citizens and residents of land, their numbers have flourished and grown and, and the population has has magnified, right? So if you're, yes, yeah, we're like, like we're terrible at it, but I'm bum, right? To, this is to make a, a, a half funny joke about something extremely seriously. But the notion of Israel being involved in a genocide um, is laughable when you look at, um, uh, at, at the numbers have increased. But what's interesting about that is that if you look at the Zionist project through this realm, it's both a strategic catastrophe on some level, that there are more people living in that land who don't want us there and with whom we have to share it than there were uh, three, four, five, six, seven decades ago, a millennia ago. And it's also something to be rather proud of, that we've been able to develop Jewish society there without doing now what they did then, because when, when um, the Chosev Lublin is looking back on Parsha Shlachlacha, he's saying that the scouts went in and they actually did that. They did start to untie the connection between the residents of that land and the land. And then when Joshua went in, it was a genocide. It was a conquering. It was a dispossessing of the seven peoples so that by the time that was over, the only people who were living there were us. I was not opening up Parsha Shlachah this week to get into some of the thorniest aspects of Zionism. I was saying, oh, what, what's going to be sweet in the Torah this week? But I found it, and once I found it, I couldn't uh, uh, untie my connection to it. And obviously, in a, in a 24-minute Shabbat afternoon, Shi'ur, we're not going to solve this. But I wanted, to, I wanted to hand it to you. I wanted to offer it um, to a group of people who, for the most part, are committed to the notion of Zionism and to the Magen David on that flag and to the wonder of a Jewish return to 1948, recapitulating on some levels Parshat Shlach Lecha, but it recapitulated both aspects of Parshat Shlach Lecha a divine mishlachat um, being sent to forge or reforge Jewish connection to the land and a recognition that the price of doing that will be to get in between people who are already in that land and their claim to it. And I have no idea, obviously, what's going to be um, in the Middle East in the next one, five, 10, 15, 20, 100, 200 years. But I do know that, that somehow these competing and sometimes utterly perpendicular notions will have to find some way to be in harmony. And that is that we believe we belong there either by divine command or by historical narrative or by uh, um, a claim earned by might and by blood. And that to, to stay on that land at the expense of ensuring that no one else th is there is undermining something very, very important about a Jewish and ethical Jewish claim uh, to sovereignty and to land itself. And it's right there from the very beginning when they were sent the first time. What Larry is saying through on Zoom is that what, what's being described here and, and is fraught and is complex is how humanity spread across the globe, right? A claim, and then if there was a, a resistance to that claim, a conquering or a non-conquering where it's, it's, it's really impossible to find a, place, a police on earth, even though the UN likes to focus on, on, on a few cities in, in Israel, it's hard to find a place on earth where you can't uncover a previous claim or a conquered people. Interestingly, one of the few places on earth where you can, here, right? I mean, 
I, I don't think we have a real understanding of a historical process by which the indigenous peoples of America conquered it from previous inhabitants. They, they were probably, they and their descendants, probably the first people who, who made this, uh, this, uh, this continent inhabited. I just started reading a book. It's a book that I bought uh, when I was on the trip to the South. Um, gosh, I can't remember the name of the book, but um, it's basically a tour through seven, seven places in the South and re-resurrecting the stories of those places through the eyes of the enslaved rather than the eyes of the enslaver. And this is written by an African-American author. And he starts off with a little, before even the prologue, he says he's gonna be talking about places like New Orleans and the Whitney Plantation and, and, and the, these cities. And he's trying to resurrect um, the voices of the people who, who lived there under oppression but he also wanted to give homage in this, as someone who's writing, um, claiming that that when land is tainted by blood, we have to uh, we have to reckon with it. He wanted to give homage to the Native American and indigenous peoples who had claimed that land before the French did, and before the British did, and before the Spanish did. And so he named the tribes who have tribal claim to New Orleans and Washington DC and, and places like that. And I would think that you probably don't have to, even, no matter how woke you get, you probably don't have to get farther back than that, right? No one is claiming that the Choctaw uh, conquered it from a previous, um, a previous culture, culture that was there. But you're right, for the most part, that's exactly how land came to be. Joel. In case that wasn't heard on the Zoom, uh, Joel was, was giving an early plug for the first uh, Baruch Lang Scholar in Residence Weekend that we're doing the last weekend in October, and we're bringing an Israeli author whose novel uh, tries to bring voices to both, si both, both sides to claim that land. Warren, and then we'll bench then Marif, yeah. Yeah. So just to repeat that for the Zoomers, what Warren is saying is that probably in ancient society, and even now, when, when the land of Israel has been conquered, it's been conquered by the superpowers of the generation, whether it's the Babylonians or the Romans or, um, or, um, or the Ottomans, and that perhaps the, the next superpowers that will come, we can't really predict them, but it might be on a cyber level as opposed to a straight military level. Uh, let's uh, end here um, with, a, with a topic opened, with a wound opened and, and intentionally not uh, um, sewn up, but something for us to remind, remind ourselves that we have to reckon with uh, when we sing Hatikva and when we say that we go back home and we uh, articulate our love for the land of Israel, that love is... Um, has been complicated for 3,000 years. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.